What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. For those of you new to the show, welcome. I'm super excited because today's episode is with Mr. Scott Babb from Libre Fighting. Um, I was fortunate to uh, pin Scott down to uh, get his story and share uh, some more information on his techniques, how we developed it, where he comes from, and uh, hopefully guys get you guys excited about uh, the content that he's putting out and some of the work that he's gone into uh, educating folks on knife combatives. Before we get into his story, though, a couple quick updates. Uh, number one, um, I was able to round out the donation to Arc Sailors to a cool $50. We raised um, some funds, which I'm super excited for. Um, you know, the podcast has only been around for a couple of months now, and uh, with everything that had been going on and is still going on in Afghanistan, um, put together a design, raised a couple, uh, raised some funds over the past couple of weeks, and got that donated. So thank you to everybody that purchased um, some swag and was able to help me raise um, some money to fund um, some additional support for folks that are trying trying to find uh, safety or get to safety in Afghanistan. Uh, moving forward, um, I've been working on getting additional designs put together for the shop. So if you're interested, please uh, take a look and see if you, there's uh, anything on there that you can't live without. And I will be doing my best to uh, continue to update designs and get some more uh, some more good stuff out there. Um, that will be linked in the episode description. Um, but last for updates, today's episode is brought to you by Everly Stock. Um, Everly Stock is an Idaho-based company that manufactures um, a full variety of um, technical gear and uh, packs so um, sitting in front of me right now is actually one of their cherry bomb packs and for those of you that don't know it's a it's a very slim pack that is designed to actually carry an AR pistol in it so if you're an individual that is undercover uh, needs to be armed whatever the case may be it's a great pack to carry around um, a great primary weapon, uh, a couple different uh, spots in it to carry mags, um, first aid kit, all that good stuff. Um, so be sure to take a look at their website, see if there is, again, anything you can't live without, and uh, give them a call. Let them know that Austin from the Vanguard Podcast sent you. Um, but I think that's it for updates, so I'm going to stop yammering, and uh, let's get after it. <laughs> What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. For those of you new to the show, my name is Austin Jardine, and uh, I'm just a dude outside of Boise, Idaho, that loves to sit and chat with people to get their stories, understand who they are, what it's taken to get to where they're at, and hopefully give you maybe some new tools, thinkings, ideas about how to go approach life, or maybe try something new to get excited about. Excuse me. So with that being said, I've got Mr. Scott Babb on the phone with me or on Zoom, whatever this is, to chat about how we got into a uh, kind of the the combatives of knife fighting because scott you run and own is it is libre fighting right yes that's awesome so i've i've been a fan of yours for a while kind of watching videos and i recently got one of my first kind of the reverse edge you know uh tip down reverse edge blades and i was looking at your website the other day kind of before we were kind of getting in contact so i'm excited do you mind just kind of sharing a little bit about who you are, if people don't know you, what you do, and then I'll just start asking and asking and interrupting if that works. Perfect. All right. Uh, my name is Scott Babb. I'm the founder of Libre Fighting. Libre Fighting is a knife combatives organization that's in over 20 countries now. Uh, we specialize in the use of uh, small blades, uh, either folding knives or small fixed blades. And our material is geared around the way that uh, knife violence unfolds in the modern world. Uh, my background was in Filipino martial arts, 
uh, where we would use typically heavier agricultural knives, uh, which I found there's some limitations trans translating those techniques from their origin origins in the Philippines to modern society, specifically uh, Philippines is obviously a tropical environment where they wear very light clothing. They have very thick, heavy blades. So uh, there's the Filipino concept of defating the snake. If someone's swinging at you, you attack the incoming limb with the blade. And obviously with no protection on that limb and a heavy blade, you're going to do catastrophic damage to that arm. So in that environment, the techniques that they, they teach are extremely functional. But when you start to move into the Western world where we don't carry those heavy agricultural blades, where we have smaller uh, pocket knives or small fixed blade knives. And in most of the Western world, we have you know, some various variations within the seasons where it's cold and people will be wearing heavy jackets um, uh, throughout part of the year. That small blade combined with multiple layers of clothing is going to, uh, help protect and minimize the amount of damage that same technique would do to an incoming limb. So we really started to look at the way knife violence unfolds in the Western world. Uh, and the typical knife attack will uh, occur within close quarters. The attacker will get close, he won't brandish the blade. It's usually in some kind of confined space, more often than not after dark. And they'll launch more of a prison style knife attack where they'll latch onto the victim and start stabbing repeatedly. Uh, and so we worked backwards from there. We started looking at the way that kind of knife violence unfolds and then started trying to find solutions for it. Um, we were very fortunate and that several years ago, we started working with Ed Calderon of Ed's Manifesto. And uh, he was taking what we were doing and this was back when he was still active. And he went down to Mexico and started working with the teams down there that go up against the drug cartels and some of the higher level law enforcement guys. And they would actually pressure test what we were doing in the field. These guys, you know, obviously they're crazy dudes. They have an extremely violent lifestyle. And uh, they would very quickly start reporting it back to us how things went down when they would use blades in the field. And then we could take what they were giving us and sort of refine what we were doing based on that. Uh, as an example, uh, one of the things that was always a part of the system was the attacks to the face and the eyes. Uh, what we learned through the feedback we were getting from the guys in Mexico is those attacks were the ones that immediately incapacitate an opponent. Most people don't realize they've been stabbed um, until the altercation's over. The exception was that when they um, were stabbed in the face or the eye were slashed in the face, they immediately fell to the ground or were clutching their face or there was some sort of immediate dramatic reaction. And based on that, we started to emphasize the attacks to the face and the eyes more, especially on entries. Um, because we found it put the opponent in a defensive mindset and helped us overwhelm them quickly. Uh, from there, we were able to spread Libre around the world to Europe, Southeast Asia, and uh, those, group, those guys started working with different groups as well. We trained the Filipino uh, intelligence units, some of the Filipino special forces, the uh, Indonesian Kapaska, and those guys uh, all also had altercations and were able to bring us back uh, information based on this. Let me adjust this light real quick. Sorry about that. Uh, so we were able to uh, start refining the system based on it as a group. So uh, we like to say the Libre was founded in the USA, but it's adolescence took place in Mexico because that's really where uh, the curriculum was shaped. And uh, from there, it's just grown. Uh, we have somewhere between 80 and 100 chapters in 20 countries right now. That's a lot. That is crazy. Uh, it's uh, something I never expected. That's for sure. <laughs> 
Dang. Okay. So when you first started in kind of working with the Filipino knives and everything in the martial arts, did you kind of expect to go down the path of like learning to teach or was it just something that, I mean, did you grow up in the Philippines or were you? No, no. My my first start was Tungsudo in the Uh, eighties. Back then, a lot different though. If you've seen the original Karate Kid movie, uh, Mm -hmm. the scenes like Cobra Kai Dojo, it was similar to that. That's about 80 (laughs) accurate. Obviously, it's a little bit more dramatic, um, but that's sort of like a militaristic, very uniformed uh, training where you're moving in unison, lining up in perfect formation. Um, everything is like choreographed and rehearsed. There's no uh, moment on the training floor that's unaccounted for. You always know exactly where you're supposed to be. Uh, knuckle push-ups for every infraction, getting, you know, you know, getting roughed up and beaten a lot. It was very, uh, it was more hardcore than the average uh shopping center dojo training that you see these days and we were very young doing this i got into filipino martial arts uh i i first saw it when i was 15 years old i started training it at 16 i was already an assistant instructor at tong sudo uh and i was interested i saw a little glimpse of it in 1992 and filipino martial arts kind of took off in the u.s in the mid 90s so i was just slightly ahead of um when it really boomed. I started it in uh, 1993 and I really wasn't a knife guy back then. It was the stick work that appealed to me. And I still love the stick work. It's still my favorite part of the Filipino martial arts. Um, my training partner was actually the one who really loved doing the knife work. Then uh, when my training partner, who was also the instructor that uh, I, I apprenticed under as a teacher, when he retired from teaching, I took on some of his students and uh, I gradually started introducing them to the stick and knife work, and they really uh, became enamored with the knife stuff, which presented a problem for me because I wasn't really comfortable with the knife skills that I had. I, um, I was astute enough to realize that the tactics that we were training and the techniques we were training didn't um, resemble the way knife violence unfolded in the Western world. Um, and, but that's all they wanted to do was the knife stuff. So I told them, look, if you guys really want to focus on the knife stuff, we'll do it. But here's the deal. We're going to start from the ground up. We're going to pressure test everything and we're going to figure out what works and what doesn't. Um, and fortunately, my crew was very patient with me and that we might work a tactic or a technique for months. And then I would come in one day and be like, hey, guys, that thing we've been working on, forget it. I don't like it. It's not functional. And they'd just be like, all right, we'd move on to something else. Uh, how we actually uh, would pressure test things is we came up with the idea of doing blender sessions, which I had access to a storage closet. It was about five feet by six feet. And that was where we sparred. So there was no dueling involved, which is um, one of the things that always uh, didn't sit right with me in uh, my Filipino martial arts training. And don't get me wrong. I love Filipino martial arts. I'm still very practical about or very passionate about uh, Filipino martial arts. I think they're very practical, especially uh, in the Philippines and in tropical environments like that. Uh, it just wasn't the path that I was going to continue to go down. Um, but one of the things that never sat right with me is we would train these close quarters techniques, but then when we would spar, it would look like, you know, like a duel out of West side story where we'd sort of be hanging back and taking swipes at each other. And then when you look at the way knife violence actually unfolds in the Western world, it was nothing like that. It was very close, very aggressive, very personal and in your face. Yeah. So I came up with the idea of using the storage closet, putting my guys in there to spar. Uh, and the way this was set up, there was actually a ladder on the far end that led up to an attic. 
so I would climb up the ladder with a video camera and be filming down to watch what was unfolding. Then I could go back and actually watch what happened in slow motion and see what yes. was working, wasn't what was coming out organically, which uh, was a big, uh, an important part of the process. Wasn't just, um, wasn't just could, could you land these techniques? Could you um, perform them under duress? That wasn't enough because in the street, you're not going to be hunting to land a technique. It was, will this technique function and will it come out organically in the midst of this chaos? And when you're in a confined space like that, there's no downtime because you're always within striking range, uh, which means that if you're not being aggressive, you're going to quickly be overwhelmed and you have to be conscious of where the walls are. You have to pin the opponent against the walls and use the walls to your advantage. Uh, so more closely simulated the way knife violence actually occur, occurs and the intensity and chaos of it. Um, and from there, we were able to just sort of refine it, find out what works, what doesn't. And that's when we started working with Ed and Ed took it down to Mexico and things really took off from there. <laughs> okay. I like, I like the, uh, the small space because I think to your point, what you said previously, right? A lot of the, the knife violence occurs very close quarters. So being in a small room <laughs> kind of forces you to do that. Yeah. An interesting side note to that is once you've been sparring like that for a while, in those sessions, we tend to keep uh, short about 20 seconds because uh, you do get banged up a lot in, in those close quarter sessions. But after you do that, once you do start uh, sparring on the open floor, things feel like they're happening in slow motion uh, just because there's so much more space and you can see the attacks coming and uh, you actually find yourself. Uh, it almost feels luxurious to have that much space between you and the opponent. You can really take your time to think and plot out your tactics as opposed to when you're in that close quarters environment, you're just trying to survive and you're functioning almost purely on instinct and just muscle memory. Interesting. Okay. So I know I've heard that, that some of the ways that you would develop, or I don't know if it was you specifically, or just kind of the knife violence would specifically develop techniques. Do you mind talking about the type of research that you did to kind of develop the techniques that you, that you have now and are teaching now? Yes. Yeah, so, um, and this is a resource I think gets underutilized, uh, in modern society is this is the first point in human history where you can just go on YouTube and watch violence unfold, whether it's, you know, fist fights or gang attacks or knife assaults or shootings, all you need to do is do an internet search and you'll find countless videos of this stuff. Uh, and that's a very new development in human history. Before then, everything was just based off of firsthand accounts or secondhand accounts that get passed on to you. Even if you witness something, you know, you were witnessing it in real time that one time, there would never be a way to process and retain what you had seen. Now you can just do an internet search and you can actually see knife attacks unfold and it's horrific and uh, it should be disturbing. It should be unsettling when you watch it. Um, but from a research standpoint, you can actually see the dynamics that unfold. And then you teach a student to emulate those dynamics, to play the role of the aggressor, the way that person attacked. And then you work backwards from there. Um, so you might take a student and teach them to pin someone against the wall and start prison stabbing. And then you say, okay, how are we going to survive this? And you start working with different techniques. Um, and then one key point that I found too, when you really need to start pressure testing stuff for real, um, in a classroom setting, of course, the person playing the role of the attacker, you know, unless they're a dick, they kind of want to see their classmates succeed. They want to, um, 
you know, they don't want to demean or uh, frustrate or, you know, break someone's confidence because these are people who train together and you tend to become a very close knit group. Uh, but that also can give someone a false sense of security and then it can also make the opponent at least subconsciously more compliant than they otherwise would be. So what I started to do was when we really get to the point of pressure testing something, I would tell the attacker, all right, if you fail, you do 50 push-ups." I'd tell the defender or the, per, the trainee, I, I hate to use the term defender because it creates the wrong kind of mindset, but I'd tell the student, if you fail, you do 50 push-ups." So now they both have motivation, right? You know, someone's doing the push-ups, and neither one wants to be that guy. And when you give them that little bit of incentive, they tend to go a little bit harder on each other and you really get, get uh, more accurate results. Um, it's not something you do every time. It's something when you, you know, in those key moments when you really need to test the function of something. Um, and it keeps everyone honest. Uh, you know, there, there's, you know, I think there's always going to be in a training scenario, the person playing the aggressor, the attacker, the bad guy, there's usually going to be some, at least subconscious degree of, uh, compliance, so you need to, you know, when you get to these high pressure situations, you need to filter as much of that out as you can um, to really uh, understand what's really going to happen in these dynamics. Okay. So how did you get to the point of, of finding, I guess, actual violence occurring? I mean, or did, was there like an evolution of like, Hey, you know, I come from the Philippine, the Filipino knife fighting or, and I, and I know knife fighting is, is maybe the, I know some people don't like that because it sounds a little funny, but like the knife violence to maybe leveraging existing documentation to realizing, hey, like there's actually things that are occurring now and it's more organic and realistic. I mean, did you, there was there was there a, I guess, a, an evolution of getting to the point of, of actually researching videos, uh, if that made sense. So I grew up in I grew up in a bad neighborhood, um, not a place where there were stabbings daily or anything that extreme. Uh, but I was exposed to violence a lot. Street fights. Um, there was at least one stabbing that I can remember offhand, maybe two. Um, but you start to see the way violence in general occurs. And that's the starting point. And um, what I realized was that in the Western world, people tend to fight with knives the way they fight empty hand, which untrained fighters in the Western world will grab onto someone's shirt and strike with their dominant hand or grab onto the back of their head or grab onto a hoodie, whatever it is, but they tend to attach and punch. And um, through hearing stories of knife assaults around where I grew up and the, the small amount that I actually witnessed, it seemed that people fought with knives the same way. They would attach and then start stabbing. And so when I started look, trying to find footage online of knife assaults after the internet became a thing, I started to see that in prisons, that would be how uh, knife attacks occurred. One prisoner would pin a guy against the wall or grab a hold of him and start stabbing him. And so you, I sort of made that connection that because America isn't a knife culture the way other places are, uh, we don't really, you know, people who attack with knives tend to do it in a very primal way. Um, you know, more if the closest thing that, you know, you could say to systemized knife violence in the U.S. Um, or a systemized way to use a knife that's indigenous to the U.S. would probably be the way they are used in prisons. Um, it's not something that's really trained too much in prisons, but it's just sort of passed along in an oral tradition or prisoners telling another guy, hey, you need to grab the student, stab him or whatever it may be. But nothing that was ever systemized or codified, but there definitely was a way that prisoners use knives. And I think that bled out into the streets. Um, 
And when you would start reading accounts of knife assaults, you would sort of start to see the same things occurring. Um, and that really opened my eyes up to the fact that, you know, a knife attack isn't going to be where someone brandishes a knife and it's something that you engage in willingly, uh, where it's, you know, a matter of honor or something like that. It's something that's, you know, in like the Renaissance era. And once you start to um, see that disconnect from the way that you were taught to use a knife and the way that the knife violence actually unfolds in the Western world, that's when I really started to realize that I had to start doing deeper research with this and start to figure out how, how to adapt what I was doing for this new situation. Um, so it was a very gradual evolution because early on in my knife training, you know, in the very early stages, I just took everything I was learning at uh, face value. And we would do the ridiculous stuff of knife on knife disarms and locking the arm up and trying to stab and all that stuff that looks really cool and that you might put in a movie. Um, and there was a time when I was younger because I started doing Filipino martial arts in my teens when I actually thought that that was functional and that if in a street assault, I would be able to perform the under duress and do these ridiculous techniques. Um, but once I started to realize how knife violence unfolds, I quickly learned that, or I accepted the fact that this isn't going to work, that I'm not going to be able to scoop someone up and strip the knife away and take them down and whatever it may be, that that's just not practical. Um, but the real, the, the real bulk of the training just came in looking at a knife assault on video, telling one of my guys, this is how you assault with someone with a knife and having one student do it to another and say, all right, let's figure this out. Um, you know, I, I always say I wish there was some uh, more magical story behind it. Some old Filipino master lived across the street from me and took a liking to me and passed on these secrets or something like that. But it, it was nothing so dramatic. It was just years. We started doing this in 2004. I posted the first video in December of 2009. So, you know, we spent a lot of time pressure testing and doing this stuff before we went public with it. And I never intended for it to blow up the way it did. That was just sort of a byproduct of what we were doing. Yeah. So you mentioned it, you brought up a good point about knife culture, knife culture, not really being predominant in the United States so much as, you know, maybe the Philippines, as far as the fighting and combatives of it. So when you first released that video, how was it received? I mean, cause it's, I feel like knife, knife violence is very personal, kind of underground, not one of those things that's very, commonplace unlike firearms where you can see some dude shooting all the time versus you see somebody practicing knife fighting and you're like what the fuck is this yeah america is very interesting and in that we are obviously a gun culture and in a lot of ways guns are more socially acceptable than knives people especially americans tend to have a very and uh europeans too um because of the knife violence in the uk um and throughout europe they uh Western cultures tend to have a very visceral reaction to knives, more so Americans, more so knives than guns. Uh, guns we're, we're very accepting of as, as far as, you know, self-defense weapons. Um, I've actually had people from uh, federal law enforcement agencies reach out to me about training their groups and uh, them running into problems with brass saying, look, we can shoot them, we can shoot them, we can club them, we can taser them. We can beat them with our fists, but the second we start knifing bad guys, it's a PR nightmare. And, and it's, it's true. Like if you read about, you know, a federal law enforcement agent knifing a criminal, you'd be like, what the fuck just happened? Like that doesn't happen. 
in American society, that just sounds fucking crazy. Um, but at the same time, I think it's kind of um, limiting that we do give law enforcement officers firearms as a lethal force tool, but that's the only lethal force tool we give them. Um, obviously, you can use a stick, but you know it's going to require a lot of effort to, to use lethal force. So we give them one lethal force tool that can run out of ammunition, that's prone to failure, and don't really give them a backup to work behind. And so I think, and obviously I'm biased because I teach knife work for a living, but I think there is a place for blade work uh, in law enforcement uh, as a last ditch lethal force tool. Um, but when I posted that first video to get back to the question, I really only did it because some of my students were trying to explain to their friends like what they were doing. And at the time MMA was getting big and they're like, so is it karate, kung fu, MMA? And they're like, no, it's, it's none of that. It's different. And I didn't call it Libre Fighting. Uh, the name of our class was the Libre Fighting Academy. So I just told them, I'm like, look, I'm just going to post some video up so you can just show your friends. And I really thought it would just circle, circulate you know, amongst my students and their friends. And then it would kind of just disappear. And for whatever reason, the first video, um, you know, it, people started commenting on it and sort of started to dig it a little bit. And then my students kind of want, cause that one was all me. And then uh, my students kind of wanted to be, wanted to be in a video. So I was like, all right, we'll do one with you too. It'll be fine. So I put them in a video and that one really took off. Um, and that's also when people started calling what we were doing Libre Fighting because the name was the Libre Fighting Academy. Yeah. So we assumed that the system was named Libre Fighting. Uh, before that, I used to just call it the way I do it. You know, people say, what's that you doing? I'm like, this is just the way I do it, you know, and we would move on. And so the people who were sort of digging what we were doing um, kind of named it Libre Fighting and it worked well enough. So I stuck with it. Um, but to my surprise, pe people for the most part dug it initially. You know, it was kind of different. It moved different. It felt different. Um, I would say we would get we were getting we would get, you know, 20 positive comments and one negative comment um, in our early videos. Uh, but this is also something that, you know, you kind of learn when you start putting yourself out there on the internet is you need to develop a thick skin. Um, cause there's always going to be someone who hates what you're doing. Uh, and like, I would literally have people, 20 people, you know, commenting, this is great. I love this. This is awesome. And then one guy would be like, Oh man, this sucks. It's bullshit. And I would be like, fuck maybe, maybe I do suck. Maybe it is bullshit. You know, be like that, that one negative comment would be the one that kind of like, you know, hung around in your ear for days longer than it should. And um, what really got me to not care about that anymore was I, and I wrote, I wrote about this in the new book. I um, was watching the video footage of Bruce Lee and half the comments were people just blasting Bruce Lee and just talking about how Bruce Lee ain't shit, how he would have gotten killed in the cage and all this shit. And I was like, you know what, if Bruce Lee can't get universal love from the community that he essentially crafted and built who the fuck am I to expect it? And, uh, you know, after that, just like negative comments never bothered me anymore. Um, but to this day, there, there are definitely, there's definitely a, a portion of the knife, knife fighting community. I don't want to say combatives because some traditional, some are on the combative side, but the knife, the knife community, there is a portion who really do not like what we do. Um, and I can understand their viewpoint from a, uh, to a limited extent and that they see it and it looks like overkill. It looks extremely violent. And um, out of context, I could see how people would assume uh, that, that it is just sort of a, um, 
sort of morbid approach to uh, knife violence. Uh, and I think part of that, uh, if I'm being honest, is my fault in that early on, I never uh, expected Libre to blow up. So I didn't really contextualize what we were doing, explaining the mindset and the approach and why we do things the way we do. Uh, and because I didn't do that, people were able to forge, you know, make assumptions and project that onto us. And it's something I've been trying to get better about in recent years is, you know, like people see us doing multiple stabs and they think that it's overkill. And then, you know, I have to explain, like, it's not a matter of overkill. It's that we're training, you know, we might be going for carotid artery, but in the heat of an altercation, that shot might miss. And if I was relying on that to be the solitary shot that was going to end the fight and it misses, I don't want to be condi conditioned to stop. I need to be conditioned to keep attacking until the opponent's down. And then also people tend to uh, be very optimistic and the how fast and I can take someone down. They think it's like the movies where if you slash it, the other guy falls over dead. The reality is a lot more gruesome than that. Um, you know, there's going to be arterial spray. There's going to be an interval between when you land that shot and when the person starts to lose consciousness and you're going to have to be dealing with the person in that interval. Um, so it's important to keep them on the defensive. And also the more damage you do to the body, the fat and the shorter that interval is going to be and the faster they're going to go down. Um, so it's not just a matter of being a psycho and just stabbing the opponent repeatedly. It's about uh, dismantling the opponent as quickly as possible. So you take as little damage as, uh, as possible and you come out of the altercation alive. Um, but again, I didn't, I don't think I articulated that particularly well in the beginning. So I think a lot of people just looked at what we did and was like, oh, this is just mindless violence. And no, there's, there's a very practical, very reasoned uh uh, approach behind what we do or mindset behind what we do behind our approach. So yeah, uh, that was my bad. I'm trying to get better about it. No, that's fair. Well, it's interesting because like, you know, from my perspective, it, it looks like overkill. Right. But I've also spent some time kind of researching it, playing with my knives, right. Kind of spending time going down the rabbit hole of it, but I totally understand the need for for multiple hits right it's like when if we put in context of shooting right it's like hey one shot does not necessarily mean the threat is neutralized right you shoot it till it goes down right it's almost the same with knife fighting right or the combatives of it right you 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 don't stop until there is no more threat exactly um and building on the analogy of shooting a lot of my critics will say that I should teach non-lethal knife disarming, uh, you know, disabling the limbs, um, which one of the things I've learned just through teaching seminars, I, every seminar I teach, I always ask, uh, has anyone here been slashed or stabbed in, in an altercation? And there's usually one or two. And then if they're comfortable talking about it, we'll, we'll have a conversation about their experience. Um, and over 90% of the time, they didn't realize they were slashed or stabbed until the altercation was over. And it's very rare that the, uh, the wound inhibited them in any way. So I don't have a lot, I don't have faith that a small knife can produce a catastrophic injury to a limb that will take the person out of the fight. Um, and building on the gun analogy, to me, it, that would be like a firearms instructor training their students to shoot someone in the foot or shoot someone in the leg, which for any shooter, that sounds fucking ridiculous. If you like, you know, if, if there was some guy on the internet teaching a shooting course and was teaching you to aim for shoulders and kneecaps, the person would be laughed out of the industry. Um, 
but with knives, you know, people just sort of take it. Oh yeah, we should just slash, you know, should just slash a leg. Um, but that being said, I do think that sort of non-lethal approach to knife training, I do think there is a place for it. And that's that if you have a student who, um, is, knows they are psychologically incapable of taking another life, that if it's just not within their moral boundaries, that they know that when push comes to shove, no matter what the situation is, they won't be able to, to take another person's life, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing at all. I, um, I think that's just, you know, in some ways I, I can almost respect someone who has that high regard for human life, but that a person who has that mindset, I think, uh, the non-lethal approach to knife fighting makes sense for them because they then they can say, look, I know I can't take another human life, but I do want to feel like I can protect myself. So I will train knife work in a system that tr trains me to disable the opponent rather than end their life. And so um, even though it's not my approach, I do think there is a place for that in the knife combatives world. Okay. So when you get students that come in or people that are interested in, in starting to train, what are some maybe misconceptions that they have about maybe the training activity, the style of it, type of knife that they might need. I mean, if somebody's it's listening, it's like, fuck, I, I want to learn how to do this. What, what, what are things that they should know or think about? Uh, um, so what, a few of the things that I find that misconceptions that people have is um, one, they tend to think there's going to be a lot of focus on knife disarming and a lot of, uh, defense against the knife that is going to be more more defense oriented and that's not at all what i do uh to me uh if someone has a weapon whether it's a baseball bat a knife a hammer something that's capable of ending your life and they're coming at you with that weapon and vocalizing lethal intent um waiting for them to start swinging on you would be like waiting for someone who has gunpoint at you to pull the trigger um you're the you're putting yourself at a catastrophic disadvantage of that so at that point where someone has a weapon, they're expressing lethal intent, and you genuinely fear for your life, I think you need to go on the attack, put them on the defensive, which is a mind sh shift, uh, a dramatic mind shift. Uh, I especially find this uh, to be problematic for people who uh, come from more defense-oriented martial arts, uh, things like it, more traditional stuff like Aikido, um, where it's like, no, take the fight to them, put them on the defensive, you attack first. Uh, they have trouble psychologically uh, accepting that. And then the other thing is, on the other side of the equation, I think that there are people who um, come to the blade work with a lot of movie fantasy, that it's going to be sort of fast and clinging that they're going to cut. There's going to be a thin red line and the person's going to fall over dead and it's going to look very cool and very choreographed. And those are the people where you have to show them what knife violence really is, which uh, can mean at making them actually see what a real knife wound looks like, like showing them photographs of it. One of the um, things I like to do after the blender sessions we discussed, um, especially after the first few, people tend to come out of it and it's sort of an adrenaline rush and the testosterone is flowing. Um, and, you know, it, it's an exciting thing to go through. And to bring them back to reality, I'll start to tell them, okay, think about everywhere you were stabbed or slashed in there. I'll say, okay, now think about everywhere you stabbed or slashed the opponent. I'll say, okay. And then I'll start showing them footage of actual knife wounds or, or photographs of actual knife wounds. I'll be like, this is what you look like right now. This is what your opponent looks like. And when they see that, um, when they see the damage that the blade is doing and that they would have sustained and they would have inflicted on another person, 
they start to realize like, oh, this this isn't just fun and games. It's not a movie. This is something that's terrible and horrific that I would I should never ever want to engage in under any circumstances if I can avoid it at all. Um, so I, I tend to find that getting the pe- the people to the right mindset initially is uh, is problematic, and some people just can't get there um, for whatever reason. They they just can't be assertive like that or they can't let go of the fantasy aspect and you know those are people who we you know tend to move on to other things um and for me personally one of the things is when you see the footage of me on instagram or youtube um especially working the dummy it looks kind of flashy and i I am I'm making it aesthetically appealing when I make those videos. Uh, you know, I'm using you know the right camera angles. I'm using techniques that I know look good on film uh, because that's just part of it. You know, if it's not aesthetically pleasing, the audience isn't going to watch it. Uh, but in actual training, I'm a stickler for the basics. And anyone who trains with me knows that I hammer the basics every single class over and over again until they're sick to death of it. Um, but that's what makes for a, for a proficient student. And I think that um, in modern society, a lot of students don't have the patience for, we're going to spend at least half of every class working the same shit you've done every class before that. Um, and the analogy that I like to use is boxing, where traditionally in boxing, um, in the old days, you would throw jabs for the first three months. That's all you would do. They would tie your hand to your chin and you would just jab a heavy bag for months on end. If you try to do that in a boxing gym nowadays, you'd be out of business. You know, you go to a boxing gym now and there's people who are teaching six punch combinations on the first day. It's like, why are you having people throw any combination when they can't even throw a jab properly? And that's why you get to the point where, um, you know, you have people who boxed for years who can't even do the fundamentals correctly. And so the focus on basics, I think, is a misconception that people don't realize that if you train with me, you're going to be doing a lot of basics, but that's, what's going to make you good. Okay. So where, uh, where, where are you at now for training? I mean, can people show up to class and train with you? Um, so I have people reach out to me on email first. Um, so we can do a little bit of a background check, make sure we're not, uh, training psychos. Uh, I don't want to go through exactly what we do for the background check because I don't want nut jobs to be able to prevent it. But, you know, I do like to do a cursory look to make sure that someone doesn't have a violent past or isn't a registered registered sex offender or, or anything like that. And we have had those people try to train with us before. Um, so I have people reach out to me and every one of my chapters kind of has their own process for doing a background check. Some only use personal referrals, some, uh, some do it the way I do it, some have other methods, some have uh, students who are in law enforcement who they will actually will have people do background checks on. Um, right now where I am in San Diego, I have my advanced crew, which is the crew that you see on our uh, videos most often. And then we also just started up a, vi- a beginner's class at another location. Um, and that class is still taking new students on. Uh, then uh, beyond that, we have our, uh, instru- our distance instructional materials, our, package, our training packages so people can train at home that are more geared towards home training and stuff like that. And then once the pandemic's over, you know, there will be more seminars happening. Some of my guys are out there currently teaching seminars um, where they can, where it's practical and some aren't depending on it. Right now, I'm not doing any seminars just because things are too much in flux. I don't want to book a seminar somewhere and have people 
rearrange their lives and book flights and hotels and then have to cancel it because, you know, there's some lockdown protocol that's in place, but we should be getting the seminars up and running once things calm down just a little bit more. Yeah. Do you mind walking through um, what the chapters look like and maybe for folks that want to find one, get involved, how to do that? Uh, so if someone wants to train, uh, shoot me an email, librefighting at yahoo.com. Let me know where you are and I'll point you to the regional director in that area. Uh, all the, all of our different company countries where we have, um, chapters have a regional director who will then refer them to the appropriate chapter that's closest to them. Um, and I do it that way because I don't want to have my chapters fighting over students. Uh, you know, if some guy goes to one chapter and then goes to another and then they, one chapter feels like the other chapter stole that student or whatever. One of the things that everyone in the Libre organization should know by now is that I do not like drama and fighting uh, at all on any level. I don't like that shit at all. So we go to great lengths to ensure there is none of that in what we do. And so the easiest way I found to do that is to let the regional directors place students in the appropriate chapter when they reach out. Okay. And then last question I think I have uh, for the instructional material. Do you mind sharing what that is, what that looks like, and how to get that as well? Um, so we have what uh, we call the Libre Fighting Guild Initiation Package. It's a folder uh, that has the uh, has two CDs, a book, uh, different inserts, and then there's a package in, within this folder that has... Uh, patches and wristbands and just all the little tchotchke stuff, but it's a, a single folder that contains all of the materials. Um, I might have one. Can we pause for one second? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good to go. So this is our initiation package. It's a folder. It has pages and inserts in it. Then there's pockets within the folder that have the, the, uh, uh, let me flip these around the DVDs. Nice. Then the second pocket has the training manual in it. Uh, this goes over mindset and tactics and stuff. Uh, this is very colorful. Yeah. So everything's in one package that you can kind of keep and take with you. If you're going off to train somewhere, keep in your training area. And then it also includes some patches and wristbands and stuff like that. And that's what we point people to who don't have a chapter near them. Okay. Uh, and then of course, if they, if they are near a chapter, we, we recommend they actually train in person because as much as we've tried to make this as functional as possible, and we've geared this towards solo training, nothing's going to replace being able to actually train in a chapter or in a classroom or a seminar setting with a live instructor and a live person. Very true. All right, man, I'm fresh out of questions. Is there anything you don't get asked that you want to talk about? You feel is important? No, I think we're good, man. You covered all the bases. <laughs> okay. Well, I tried. Uh, I appreciate you, man. I, I love it. I love watching your guys' videos. And um, I got, actually, I think it's downstairs on my, in my nightstand or my dresser. I've got my first uh, tip down reverse edge blade that I need to tape up so that I can start practicing with. But uh, it's cool. I think it's fun. Yeah, um, it gets addictive. You know, it's uh, you start to do the work and then uh, it starts to become a matter of uh, you start to seek mastery with it. You get beyond uh, just knowing that you can be functional with a blade and it becomes something you become passionate about and something that people just tend to want to excel with, I find.
Well, I hope you all enjoyed today's episode with Mr. Scott Babb of Lee Bear Fighting. I feel like I learned quite a bit as far as how the techniques were developed, where he came from, and uh, how they're being applied now. So I would encourage you all to take a look at his website and also his socials. I will make sure that that is linked in the episode description. Um, with that being said, I hope you all have a great day, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you.